Welcome to the second hour of the first episode of Air Checks. I'm your host, Ty Rose Now. This show focuses on radio shows from old-time radio to current shows written as plays or when a radio show was recorded. A showcase of radio programming that may have been lost over the decades if it hadn't been recorded and preserved for future generations. In the radio and television industry, recordings of radio shows were fairly common anywhere from transcription discs for later replay or to make a commercial that had been played on the air for the salesman to show their client. Air Checks is a three-hour program that is uploaded into a podcast on Saturdays and Sundays for radio stations across the nation, internationally, and for you, the listener. We're about to go into the third part of the Golden Memories of Radio with Jack Benny and Frank Knight as the hosts of the Long John Symphony Orchestra in 1969. Here's the great radio comedians. Though comedy and drama provided the warm family memories of those golden years, the dramatic punctuation that underscored our lives and helped to change the course of destiny came from the news bureaus of radio. To take you through those years in a kaleidoscopic living history, I've asked a friend of mine whose voice has been a welcome visitor into millions of American homes to take over. Frank Knight has been the voice of the Longines Symphonette for over three decades. And before that, his special vantage point as chief announcer for the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship station, WOR in New York City, makes him uniquely qualified to recall with us the momentous and some not-so-momentous moments in history. Frank, it's nice to be with you again. Thank you, Jack. Listening to those great memories of radio brought back the names of so many of my friends that it's hard to know where to begin. Radio recognized its obligations very early. In 1920, station KDKA, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, broadcast presidential election returns for the very first time in history. It is now apparent that the Republican ticket of Harding and Coolidge is running well ahead of Cox and Roosevelt. At the present time, Harding has collected more than 16 million votes against some 9 million for the Democrats. We'll give you the state vote in just a moment. But first, we'd like to ask you to let us know if this broadcast is reaching you. Please drop us a card, address station KDKA, Westinghouse, East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The first transcontinental radio network broadcast was of a Rose Bowl game in January of 1927. In the same year, Lindbergh's triumphant return from France was broadcast coast to coast from Washington, D.C. The President of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, introduced Lindy to Congress. As President of the United States, I bestow the Distinguished Flying Cross upon Colonel Charles A. Lindbergh. I arrive in the Bourget Paris at every gathering, at every meeting I attended with the same words. You have seen the affection 
of the people of France, for the people of America, demonstrated to you, take back with you this message from France and Europe to the United States of America. Well, thank you. About this time, the newspapers were beginning to recognize radio as competitor for the advertising dollar. Do you remember the joke making the rounds? What is the difference between newspapers and radio? Well, you can wrap a herring in a newspaper. Amos and Andy were using topical subjects then, and this was their comment on a certain election. Uh, who is the men that is running against each other this year election time? Explain that to me. Herbert Hoover, Vesuvius Al Smith. Herbert Hoover, Vesuvius Al Smith, huh? Yeah. Another thing I'm going to ask you. I, I don't know if I was going to be a Democrat or a Republican, you know it. How did your old man vote? Oh, my papa, you mean? Yeah, that's it. Oh, papa used to always vote for the uh, Democrats. Well, then if I was in your place, I would vote for the Republicans. How come? Because I never knowed your old man to do nothing right in his life. And when the stock market broke in 1929, another of your favorite comedians, Eddie Cantor, took the opportunity to laugh at his own losses. If the market takes another slump, I know thousands and thousands of married men who will have to leave their sweethearts and go back to their wives. Nowadays, when a man walks into a hotel and requests a room on the 19th floor, the clerk asks him, for sleeping or jumping? As the time for a new presidential election drew near, there were many very fundamental issues. The stock market crash and the resulting depression. The question of prohibition and the evils it had brought on the scene. One of the greatest orators of his time, legendary in his pursuit of sin, fanatic in his determination that prohibition should remain the law of the land, was ex-baseball player Billy Sunday. The return of the saloon would mean the overthrow of civilization in our land. It was because I didn't want our boys to die drunkards that I fought and fight. I'm going to live long enough to see America so dry, you'd have to prime a man before he can spit. And I'll fight the saloon from Hawaii to Hoboken. And I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. And I'll fight it as punch it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I have a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, the first United States president to take full advantage of the growing power of radio was Franklin D. Roosevelt. Starting with his own first inaugural address, FDR took to radio no less than 20 times in the first nine months of office. I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. This is a day of national consecration. And I am certain that on this day, my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This is preeminently the time 
to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Taxes have risen. Our ability to pay has fallen. Government of all kinds is faced by serious curtailment of income. The means of exchange are frozen in the current of trade. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no market for their produce, and the savings of many years in thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence, and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. As FDR turned his strength towards solving our domestic problems, the rumble of trouble began in Europe. New voices from afar became familiar to listeners in the United States as radio began to shrink the world. Against the background of disturbance in Europe, a thoughtful radio voice warned the United States to watch the East. In 1935, Edwin C. Hill, a crack NBC commentator, had this to say. Still another of those useless, troublemaking naval armament reduction conferences gets underway in London with prospects already darker than your cellar at midnight. Good old Uncle Sam, always hopeful, tells Great Britain and Japan that he would like to welcome a 20% naval cut. John Bull shuts up like the clam of commerce. With Hitler building up a navy for Germany and Mussolini on the warpath doesn't suit him at all. But Japan speaks out with an emphatic no. As an American, I admire the idealism and good faith of our government, but sometimes I do wish that our beloved Uncle Sam would stay at home and mind his own business. Someday, we may get our fingers burned, mind our own business, speak softly, carry a big stick, and keep an eye on Japan as far as this side of the Pacific is concerned. Clyde Pangborn, famous flying man, testifies before a congressional committee that, in his opinion, America is threatened by only one enemy, and that enemy is Japan. He testifies that Japan has perfected man-operated aerial torpedoes in which the plane and the bomb are one, an instrument deadlier than any known weapon, certain to bring death to the operator. Yet thousands of Japanese, says Pangborn, have already volunteered for the honor of dying as pilots of these infernal weapons of infernal modern warfare. 1935 also saw a case closed written on the official records of the famed Lindbergh kidnapping case, three years after Lindy's infant son was kidnapped and killed. The National Broadcasting Company presents a special bulletin from the Press Radio News. Trenton, New Jersey. Bruno Richard Hauptmann was electrocuted at 8.47 tonight for the murder of the Lindbergh baby. This bulletin is from the Press Radio Bureau. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Nothing to fear, but fear itself, became the classic rallying cry of that recovery era. Radio carried that message of hope to homes throughout the nation. It has become a classic. Radio broadcasts of lasting impact became more frequent during the turbulent 30s as the world underwent change after change. 
One classic broadcast with an impact of intensely personal nature occurred when the dream of the dirigible crashed with the Hindenburg in Lakehurst, New Jersey. The description by Herb Morrison and his engineer, Jimmy Nelson, belongs in this collection because never again has a disaster been broadcast right from the spot from the first second when fate took a hand in what was to have been a routine news broadcast. We both flew down from Chicago yesterday afternoon aboard one of the giant new 21-passenger flagships of American Airlines. It took us only three hours, 55 minutes, to fly nonstop from Chicago to New York. When we landed at Newark, we found another flagship of American Airlines waiting to take us to Lakehurst with our equipment when we were ready to go. And incidentally, American Airlines is the only airline in the United States which makes connections with the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg left Frankfurt, Germany, yes, uh, Tuesday evening, rather, at 7.30, their time. And for better than two and a half days, they've been speeding through the skies over miles and miles of water here to America. Now they're coming in to make a landing of the Zeppelin. I'm going to step out here and uh, cover it from the outside. So as I move out, we'll just stand by a second. Well, here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. We're out now, outside of the hangar, and what a great sight it is. A thrilling one. It's a marvelous sight. It's coming down out of the sky, pointed directly towards us and toward the mooring mass. The mighty diesel motors just roared, their propellers sighting into the air and throwing it back into a gale-like whirlpool. No wonder this great floating palace can travel through the air at such a speed with these powerful motors behind it. Now, a field that we thought active when we first arrived has turned into a moving mass of cooperative action. The landing crews have rushed to the posts and spots, and orders are being passed along, and last-minute preparations are being completed for the moment we have waited for so long. The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather, riding as though it was mighty, mighty proud of the place it's playing in the world's aviation. The sh ship is no doubt busting with activity, as we can see. Orders are shouted to the crew. The passengers are probably lining the windows, looking down at the field ahead of them, getting their glimpse of the mooring mast. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship and uh, has been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. It's, the rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It bursts into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's right, and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the mooring fast, and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's... Hydrogen gas in it just caused the, the tail surface 
broke into flame first, then there was a terrific explosion, and that followed by the burning of the nose and the crashing nose into the ground, and everybody tearing back at breakneck speed to get out from underneath it because it was over the people at the time it burst into flames. Now, whether it fell on the people who were witnessing it, we do not know. But as it exploded, they rushed back. And now it's smoking a terrific black smoke floating up into the sky. And the flames are still leaping maybe 30, 40 feet from the ground, the entire 811 feet length of it. They're fan frantically calling for uh, ambulances and things. The wires are being hu uh, humming with uh, activity. And uh, I I've, I've lost my, my breath several times during this exciting moment here. Will you pardon me just a moment? I'm not going to stop talking. I'm just going to swallow several times until I can keep on. I should imagine that the nose is not uh, more than 500 feet or maybe 700 feet from the mooring mass. They had dropped two ropes, and uh, whether or not uh, some spark or something set it on fire, we don't know, or whether something pulled loose on the inside of the ship, causing a spark and causing it to explode in the tail surface. But everything crashed to the ground, and there's not a possible chance of anybody being saved. I wish I could stop in just a moment and uh, see if I can get my breath again. And Charlie, if you'll fade it out just a minute, I'll come back with more description, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm back again. I raced down to the burning ship, and just as I walked up to the ship, over climbed over the picket line, I met a man coming out, dazed, dazed. He couldn't find his way. I grabbed a hold of him. It's Philip Mangone, Philip Mangone, A-N-G-O-N-E, of New York. Philip Mangone, he's burned terribly in the hands, and he's burned terribly in the face, his eyebrows, and all his hair is burned off, but he's walking and talking plainly and distinctly, and he told me he jumped. He jumped with other passengers. Now, there's a Mr. Spay. It sounds like Spay. We're not sure of it. And uh, he also got out. Now, it is my sincere hope the majority of the passengers jumped when it came close to the ground, according to what Mr. Mangone told me. He says, thank God he jumped, and, and we say thank God for him also. That was the great radio comedians, and here's more of the great radio comedians. Abner, will you come over here and help me put this sign on the door? Why, sure, Lom. Just hold this nail in place while I whack it with a hammer. For quiet, homespun humor with a country flavor, I think you have to turn to Lum and Abner as the foremost example. In fact, I can't think of anything on television today that has captured this particular kind of format. The comedy was comfortable and funny. Lum, well, suppose you hold a nail in place while I whack it with a <laughs> You think I'm crazy? The trouble here is we're suffering from an oversupply of whackers. Have you ever seen me hit anybody on the thumb with a hammer? Yes. Last summer when Opie Cates helped you put up the screens. That was just a little tap. Tap? You smacked that thumb so flat it looked like he's carrying around a pancake flipper. Why, he didn't even holler. He let out such a beller all the fellers at the sawmill knocked off for lunch. <laughs> Stop exaggerating and hold that nail. Granny. Lom, you, you couldn't hit that nail no matter if your whole life depended on it. Oh, now, be it. quiet. Huh? Just this hold... is my page-flipping finger here, Lom. Be Just careful. Just hold the nail in place. Okay, here goes. There. Now, how was that? Not bad. 
Just aim it two more feet to the left, and I think you'll have it. <laughs> Trouble is, the top of the nail is too small. You couldn't drive that nail if I stuck it in between my teeth and let you hit me on the back of the head. <laughs> Don't give me any ideas. Now, just hold it in place. This time, I'll keep my eyes open. Good. Think one of us ought to know what's going on. You ready now? Yeah. Here it goes. Idiot, why don't you watch what you're doing? Abner Peabody, I didn't even touch that hand. I know you didn't. You got the one I had in my pocket. <laughs> one of the most nostalgic names in the American theater came to radio and leaped to success with the devilish character she created. Her career has been portrayed on Broadway in the smash musical Funny Girl. Who else but Fanny Bryce as Baby Snooks? Hmm. I was just trying to help you, Dad. Why must you torment me this way? Why can't you just leave me alone when I feel like playing the piano? Because I want to play, too. You don't know how to play. I can lay. <laughs> oh. Do you really mean that, Snooks? Yes, Dad. Because nothing would please me more. And if I teach you to play, will you practice faithfully every day? Mm-hmm. All right, darling. <laughs> Sit here beside me. <laughs> Who knows? You may turn out to be a child prodigy. Who knows? Now, before I give you the first lesson, suppose we try to find out just how much natural ability you have. How? Well, see if you can pick out a tune. Whatever music comes into your head. All right. All right, all right. We can forget the prodigy business right now. Shall I play some more, Daddy? No. Pay a little attention, Snooks. There are seven major musical notes in the scale. Where's the scale? Right here. Now listen. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A. See this note? That's A. A what? A nothing. A is just its name. Now what comes after A? B. And what comes after E? F. Good. What comes after G? Whiz. <laughs> Snows. <laughs> I was only fooling, Daddy. All right. What comes after G? H. No. After G, you start all over again with A. Now. A, A, A. What note is this? H. No. Didn't you hear me singing it? It's well, A. Well, it sounded like H. <laughs> when the Longines Symphonette Society first suggested that we create this treasury of golden moments from radio, Mary Livingston and I spent many evenings reliving some of our own radio broadcasts. We came across this one I thought you might like. All right, Mary, read me your mother's letter. Okay. <clears throat> My darling daughter, Mary, just a note to let you know that we are all well. Although I must say that this being election year, your father and I have been having our usual political arguments. As you know, I'm a Republican and he's a Democrat. I wear a button that says I like Ike and your father's been wearing a coonskin cap. <laughs> he thought it was a coonskin till this morning when it had kittens. <laughs> no kidding. Well, Mary, at last... <laughs> 
Well, Mary, at last I have some good news for you. We're finally getting rid of your Aunt Emily. Well, it's about time. She's been living with your family as long as I can remember. For the past two years, your Aunt Emily's been going with the local undertaker. And next Sunday, they're getting married. I'm glad when they get a home of their own, I'm tired of them coming in here every night with those secondhand flowers. <laughs> God. Right now, she's wearing a ribbon in her hair that says, rest in peace. <laughs> But even though he's an undertaker, he's very progressive, and he's the only one in town with a convertible hearse. <laughs> a, a, a convertible hearse? No. <laughs> no other news. Well, your mother's a humdinger today. <laughs> no other news, so we'll close with love, Mama. P.S. Just as I was getting ready to seal this envelope, the postman came with your check for Mother's Day. Mary, this was very thoughtful of you. But how you could send me that much money on the salary Jack pays you, I'll never know. Mary, how much did you send her? Four dollars. <laughs> can you remember the day you bought your first automobile? I can remember driving mine home, for I had my friend Mel Blank with me. Mel and I still work together, and I still have the Maxwell. Amazing, Mel Blanc, the man of a thousand voice characterizations. And speaking of characters, there's still another graduate of radio around today. And I do mean around, around every Army, Navy, and Air Force base in the world. The old ski knows himself, Bob Hope. Thank you, fellas. No whistling. We'll have the place loaded with dogs. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, here we are at the Pasadena Army Service Forces Regional Hospital. That's an ambulatory phrase, meaning don't step out the back door, Joe. It's a 100-foot drop to the sewer. <laughs> yes, sir, I've done a couple of shows in hospitals recently. I feel so much safer when there's a doctor close by. And this is a wonderful spot for a hospital. When a battle fatigue, face, uh, fatigue case comes in and they can't calm him down and make him sleepy the usual way, they just give him a pass to go into Pasadena. Pasadena, that's the town where the curfew goes on at 12, noon. <laughs> no, but I want to tell you, it's a great place to live. Pasadena is a very quiet town. In fact, every time a soldier takes a walk, the Chamber of Commerce appoints a man to follow behind him in oil, oil as GI shoes. <laughs> Somebody ought to oil my tongue for a while here, too. And Pasadena is really a ritzy town. They're so fussy here, the mayor meets the Greyhound buses at the city limits with a can of flea powder. So, Ritzy, I put a nickel in the Pasadena jukebox to play one meatball, and it came out one caviar croquette. <laughs> I saw one beautiful rich debutante here this afternoon, though. Boy, she was really loaded. She had money, too. 
But these soldiers aren't impressed with the local register here in Pasadena. When they go out with a girl, they don't care about who's who. They want to know what's what, what's 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 what. This hospital used to be a hotel called the Vista Del Arroyo. That's a Spanish term meaning why, Sergeant, the young lady was just admiring my cast, and we got so engrossed, we must have strolled into Hollywood without knowing yet. Back around 1948, television was beginning to gain in stature. The stars were still the property of radio, but it was obvious a change was in the wind. Fred Allen was already making plans and he revealed those plans on his show one evening when a gatecrasher joined him for a sequence that requires all of your imagination. Benny was born ignorant and he's been losing ground ever since. <laughs> Benny was doing a monologue with a pig on the stage. The pig was there to eat up the stuff the audience threw at Benny. <laughs> Why, some weeks he used two pigs. Benny is the only guy in New York who has to bounce his nickels for the manager before they let him in the automat. <laughs> who would be low enough to sneak into a tour to save 60 cents? There's the guy! Hey, you! Who, me? Jack, how can you be so cheap? All right, go ahead. Be like the other radio comedians. Tell some cheap joke. I won't even eat in the sun. My shadow might ask me for a bite. <laughs> Your shadow has teeth? <laughs> Jack, now look. Get excited. Look, if you're cheap, you're cheap. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> well, Jack, if there ever was a time that you and I should not argue, this is the time. What do you mean, this is the time? Well, a lot of, haven't you heard, a lot of the radio programs that have been on for many years have been canceled. By the way, you, uh, you finished tonight, didn't you? Yes, sirree. Tonight was my last show of the season. Did your sponsor mention anything about your program coming uh, back in October? Well, no, no, Fred, but we have a mutual understanding. You see, we always sort of take it for granted. Oh. The season ends, the sponsor shakes hands with me, and then we... Yike! <laughs> Jack. Jack, what's, what's wrong? Tonight he didn't shake hands. Cheer up, Jack. When you retired, you can tune in on my new show. New show? Uh, people don't want entertainment today. A radio show has to give away things. Nylons, iceboxes, automobiles. You mean to stay on the air, you have to give things away? Yes. I'll die first. <laughs> well, not me. I'm auditioning my new program tonight. And you're, Fred, you're giving things away? Tons of stuff. Well, Fred... As long as I'm here in the studio... Well, no, I'm sorry, Jack. Professional... <laughs> Professional people cannot participate. It's a rule. But uh, don't you ever find people on these programs changing their names to, to get something for nothing? Well, occasionally we do catch a phony, but we're on the air. What can we do? Hmm. Now, Mr. Allen, we're ready for your audition. I'll run along, Fred. So long. So long, Jack. Hmm. Giving away things for nothing. Well, all right, let's try out my new show. Here he is, the man who will change one of you nobodies into king for a day, the old kingmaker himself, Fred Allen! Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And here is our first eager contestant. Your name, sir? Myron Proudfoot. <laughs> Myron Proudfoot? 
You look like a chap I know. I'm not interested in your friends. Start giving things away, brother. <laughs> what is your occupation, Mr. Proudfoot? I'm a chaplain in a bakery. What does a chaplain do in a bakery? I put wings on angel cake. <laughs> How long have you been in the cake business, Mr. Proudfoot? Long enough to know a crumb when I see one. When I see one. <laughs> now, don't get sarcastic, Mr. Proudleg. The name is Proudfoot, and make with the question. All right. Who is the sixth president of the United States? John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams is correct. And Mr. Myron Proudfoot is king for a day. Well, Your Majesty, how do you feel? Never mind how I feel. What do I get? Immediately after this program, Your Majesty will be guest of honor at a banquet at Hamburger Heaven. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, through the courtesy of the sanitation department, you will be guest conductor on the 11-5 garbage run through the Bronx. <laughs> at night, in your ermine robe, you will be whisked by bicycle to Orange, New Jersey, where you will be the judge in a chicken cleaning contest. <laughs> I'm king for a day! And that's not all! Therefore? Yes, we are going to start right now to make you look like a king. Your suit is a little baggy, king. Boys, take his majesty's coat off. Wait, wait. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a For 15 years, I've been waiting to catch you like Alan, this. you haven't seen the end of me. It won't be long now. I want my pen. Well, that's the end of the second hour, but we will have more in the next hour featuring the radio adventures and drama and the classic radio news broadcast on Air Checks.